0: Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the production designers, the sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, authors, composers, choreographers, you name it, we talk to them. Um. Uh, And yes, we are back. I am back in studio today. Last week, I was not. I did a pre-recorded show because we had no live guests to join us, and things were extremely hectic last week, with more than twenty-three interviews. Uh, And Pam's making a face. (laughs) I had I had two days where I had seven on each day, Pam one of which involved a 40-plus-minute hold. And here's a note to all the publicists out there. When you're running a press day, there is such a thing as running late, but having all of your press on hold in excess of 40 minutes to bring them in, for an, to plug them in for an interview slot virtually is ridiculous. Uh, it's disrespectful of talent. It's disrespectful of all the press and our time. And really, it's a waste of yours, too. So, you know, plan in those bathroom breaks for your talent. Plan in for those technical difficulties, which you always seem to have when you're using Zoom. Another reason I don't use Zoom. Uh, and, you know, and bathroom breaks. You know, your talent needs bathroom breaks. Everything contributes to lengthening and delays. So please, this is, consider this a public service announcement on behalf of the press who participate in these virtual press days, <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I, that I've done my duty on behalf of, of my colleagues and friends. Uh, so, but I'm very excited about today's show. We have a guest I am so looking forward to speaking with, Zach Carver, first time feature film documentarian, and his the film opens this week on May 20th. Uh, and it is called Race to Alaska. And it is a documentary on this insane race. i had never heard of it until this documentary, but I'm now hooked. It is a 750-mile journey from Port Townsend, Washington, to Ketchikan, Alaska, going up the north American, uh, west, western edge of the North American seacoast. Uh, and going in and out of different areas, um, some specific areas that they hit. You've got different legs. You go from Port Townsend up to Victoria, British Columbia. You've got, and we'll talk about this with Zach, um, the proving ground, which that's going to make or break you. Then you get to stage two, and that's, you know, if you can make it to the bitter end. Some of the waterways that are being traversed are some of the most beautiful you will ever see. But they're also some of the most treacherous in the world. Yeah, fascinating. But the most interesting thing about this race is and it's done on the water is that no motors are allowed. Kayaks, you can kayak, you can paddle. actually There's actually one racer that is sh- one of the showcased racers in this documentary who upright stands upright paddling. Then we have boats that are propelled by pedaling. Then there are sailboats. Then, of course, you're at the, at the mercy of the winds with a sail. This is so interesting to watch. Number one, to see the boats that people craft and come up with in order to enter this race and compete. Um, you know, first prize is 10 grand, second prize is a set of steak knives. Uh, and this is part of the fun. And that's one of the things that you see with all of the racers in Race to Alaska. Everyone is having fun. Yes, it's serious. Uh, traversing these waters, it is very serious. It is dangerous. Uh, you need to be aware of currents, you need to know understand navigation, but you also need to have fun. So I'm excited for the second half of the show when Zach calls to talk to him. But first, one of my most favorite subjects, sharks. And we have a new shark movie just in time for summer. What would the year be without a shark movie? This one is Shark Bait. And it is directed by the wonderful James Nunn, one of my favorite directors, with a script by Nick Saltrisi, t- and no, I'll warn you right now. And I tell I tell James this right up front in our interview. By the nine-minute mark, you want the shark to eat all of these teens because this basically boils down to spring break stupidity and sharks. Need I say more? Um, the cinematography is stunning. Over 90%, about 90% of this film was shot on the open waters off the coast of Malta um, versus a tank. Obviously, some aspects of this film were shot in a tank. But in this interview, you're going to hear James, who is one of the greatest directorial technicians. Um, That is one of his greatest strong suits, is the technical aspect of film and the challenges. You may recall... My regular readers and listeners will recall my interview with James back in October for the Scott Atkins movie, One Shot, which is essentially, it's made look like a one a one-shot for the entire film going through this military compound. Um, so James takes us from that precision and technical acumen on land now to the sea. And you're going to hear him talk about not only his cast, but the structure, the underwater photography by Mike Silk is incredible. It is spectacular. It's some of the best I've seen. Uh, and And James Ta also talks about the rigging of equipment boats and how they designed it so everything was more or less connected. So as a jet ski that... Our poor spring breakers are on out in the middle of the ocean, uh, which, of course, they went out on, on, on two jet skis, one overturned because they were playing chicken with jet skis in the middle of open water. That leaves five of them out there. We got somebody who gets injured. Everybody has lost their cell phones. Oh, dear, oh, my. And one by one, you know, we got five trying to cram onto one jet ski. One decides, oh, I'm going to swim to shore. You can't see the shore, but I'm going to swim to shore. Or to a boat, whatever comes first. And then our shark appears. We've got body parts, we've got dismemberment. We have all kinds of fun stuff happening in this movie. With still just one jet ski that doesn't work. And teenagers that don't understand anything about sharks about survival, or about the mechanics of a jet ski. So there's some fun stuff to be had in here, but I love the chara- the way that James has concentrated also in the editing, focus on the emotional beats of character versus jump scares of a shark. Uh, it's really interesting, a standout performance from Holly Earl, but it is the, it's the beauty of this film, of the cinematography, of the water, of the co- of, the, of Malta uh, that is absolutely stunning and I gotta tell you some of the greatest VFX shark work to come around in a while so without any further ado take a listen to my exclusive interview with James Nunn talking shark bait hey yeah how are you I am so happy to speak to you again we had we had, <laughs> yeah, we had, so much fun talking about one shot. You got another one. Shark bait. James, I got to tell you. I'm going to tell you right now up front, by the nine-minute mark, I was rooting for the sharks, and I wanted all of those kids to get eaten alive. <laughs>
1: Oh, good take, Debbie. <laughs> it, was,
0: it was. This was the perfect blend of spring break, stupidity, and sharks. Number one, I appreciate that. Thank you. The way you brought these, these kids to life, your casting was perfect. The only one that had any potential from the very beginning was Holly Earl's take on Nat. And that's very obvious. Mm-hmm. But everybody else, man, is just, oh, shark. Please, please, please eat them. <laughs> but getting <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a fine. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah.
1: You, well, I'm Ruing for the shark. It isn't entirely what I was going for, but I'll take it. And um, uh, you're not the only person to say that. But I agree with you. Look, the cast actually did a tremendous oh. job of bringing those characters to life.
0: But something that Nick you had
1: written some, um, some <laughs> lovely types on the you know lovely types of characters and and. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, Gary, I'm
0: sorry. But no, what you re- what you did is these little details that you have in there, such as with your cinematographer, with Ben Molden. I love how we follow the camera follows the cell phone falling to the bottom of the ocean. So all these all these trappings that these kids rely on, they can't rely on them because they don't have them, and. It doesn't yeah. even it doesn't even dawn on them until they're out on a jet ski and reaching in a pocket after you're soaking wet. Oh, I don't have my phone. So <laughs> I I mean the mentality is captured so beautifully. I mean so Thank you very much. beautifully. And then you even let us see the girls getting sunburned. Finally, I am watching a film. Then has people out on the ocean for hours on end, they don't have sunblock, and we're actually seeing the skin turning pinkish red. That meant the world to me to see that, James, and I mean that sincerely because it's those little details that show somebody paid oh, attention. That's pretty kind, every thank you. Because you know yourself, you watch films that are out, out on the ocean, everybody they're lily white, and the sun its like the sun isn't touching them.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, we certainly. You know, certainly with uh, my style of filmmaking is to um, dig into the realism of it all. Now, obviously, we're making a shark movie, but it doesn't mean we can't try to hit these realistic you know, moments and beats in life. And it's really, uh, it means a lot to me that you picked up on stuff like the makeup and and wardrobe and the degradation of, of uh, their skin and how that everything has a character. You know, obviously the, the actors are, are the characters, but then, you know, the bathing suit is a character, mm-hmm. their skin is a character, the
2: jet ski yes. itself
1: it, it has its own kind of arc. And um, we had a wonderful cast and crew that all sort of pulled together to... Um, visualize all of that stuff so it means a lot that you picked up and i appreciate it
0: even the life vest on the dead guy floating in the water that has a character arc of its own
1: well it's a story beat. you're completely correct it
0: it sure as heck is because without that particular beat we're not going anywhere we're just going to sit in the middle of the ocean so Yeah, yeah yeah everything is purposeful and that's a great thing about your filmmaking, James. The big thing that really stands out for me, your underwater camera work. Mark Silk's camera work underwater is stunning. I love the underwater oh, I, work. Yeah. And I don't I agree.
1: know he's he's the I mean, I think he's probably the one of the he's the better he's the best to me, he's the best in the world. He's certainly the best I've ever met. Um, as a man is like a fish with a camera, he's
0: amazing. How much of this did you actually do in quote-unquote open water? And how much was done in a tank? Because I have to tell you, some of those underwater shots looking up, and we see the sun, the light coming down into the water, and that always creates such a gorgeous effect, and it does that here mm-hmm. as well. So you know, sometimes you can get that in a tank. Sometimes you can't. So I'm curious how you worked with Ben as your as your DP and working with Mark with your underwater work, because I am in love with that aspect of this film. I am absolutely in love with it, James.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, there's something very magical about um, the, what the camera looks like underwater. You know, I feel the same almost when camera is looking at glass, and you know. Mm-hmm. Have- light reflection like patterns of lights in it so it's um essentially it was very important to me that we shot as much of the movie as we could on the ocean um because you just get such a greater depth and texture to the richness of the way the water behaves the way the light behaves um and equally um you know you're less you, you know you're kind of restricted by the technical side of it but then you're not restricted by the angle that you can have the camera because sometimes the problem with the tank is obviously you can't show the edge of the tank you can't see the horizon line things like that and you you kind of have to work within the parameters so you it, working on the water is extremely technical whichever way you slice it whether you go onto the ocean it's technical or whether you uh, are in the tank it's technical and we opted. Um, and the producers uh, kindly facilitated the ability for us to shoot as much as we could on the ocean, so I think it was probably uh, I'm picking a number right now, but eighty five percent is shot out on open ocean wow. it's only really the stuff that you physically can't do um we um like pulling people out of the water on crane rigs and Um, shooting at night where you need to be able to light a a body of water, Um, mostly to lighting and technical is kind of what drove us into the Tang. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so then we we concentrated on knowing that, you know, we wanted to go out into the ocean and shoot the movie on the ocean. We contemplated um, the efforts of the, uh, we shot in Malta, which is a gorgeous island to shoot in, Mm and the richness of the water there is, we have a phrase called gin clear, um it's just super clear water you could see for i mean on a gr- you can see for kind of twenty thirty meters, which worked really well in um playing our shark and looking out and is he there isn't he there and stuff like that but um we had a lovely marine coordination crew, and they were able to uh, build us this kind of rig, which resembled like almost like an American end goal, an American football end goal, which mm-hmm. dangled off the back of the boat, and we kind of tethered our jet ski to. And then um, Ben Molden, who was the kind of principal DOP for the Above Water um is a, is a technical whiz genius, and, you know, we were a budget movie, and as I say, it's difficult to lie on the ocean because you've got the... You gotta fight the waves so that you know, the lighting rigs going up and down, the cameras going up and down, the people in the water going up and down. So we tried to tether everything together so we all moved up and down together. Mm -hmm. And then rather than try to put these lights that were just uncontrollable, we would spin the boat to kind of backlight the backlight the subjects as much Mm. as we could and then bounce um bounce for bounce sort of a a fill line onto the front of them so then, honestly Ben is a genius he worked out how to do all this and um we built a rig to do it and the Alties crew built it and it was just a, this really harmonious crazy technical fun um like you you know you feel like you're learning you feel like you're at school again trying to achieve because yeah. we're really trying to achieve like a high end looking movie on you know not like a huge budget because we, we're trying to compete with the likes of the shadows and stuff and um so it was—it was just technical and fun and a whole experience and, and a joyous
0: one. So, so I've got to ask you: What's more challenging or more fulfilling for you—working you know, all this out and shooting on the water or pulling off that whole one-shot idea with Scott? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like, it's like a, do you know, it's mind-boggling to me. You go from land to sea with technical proficiency that is mind-blowing and very challenging and you pull it both off so i'm just curious which is more is more <laughs> difficult for you and more fulfilling
1: well i mean you've hit the nail on the head you know like i'm a very technical filmmaker and i love those challenges and i love being able to push the technology that exists and and um I think it really adds to the movie that you're making, so you know, I won't dwell on one shot too much, because this is more about a yeah, but like the the one shot element of, of that movie, you know, could force this tension, and um, stress on everyone in a positive way, I should say. But it kind of in, in, it then enhanced the tone of the movie and um, everyone's performances, and it was kind of like that with Sharkbait. You know, like it was a highly technical shoot, but we found a, a fun way to do it and a way that really elevated. The some of the parts that we had and um I as a filmmaker I'm extremely technical and I love a challenge and if you find the right cast that are willing to be kind of in the seat for that challenge and crew I should say then you know you can really pull off sort of wonders and we were fortunate off on Shark Day to have a really enthusiastic young cast that were just willing to do this adventure pick I suppose because it's as, it's as grueling being on a jet ski in the ocean and battered by the wind and the waves for 10 hours a day, which is probably what it was,
2: that mm-hmm.
1: you really are, are signing up for an acting gig, but you're also signing up for, like, an adventure holiday. Yeah. You know, like, it's really um, grueling. and But it, it, it enhanced everything about it because I think them being out there actually having this... We rehearsed the movie... In shallow water for four days or whatever, and that, that kind of got them got second nature. He gave the cast his second nature with all the kind of dialogue. But then once we got into the ocean, um, they were then like, they didn't have to worry so much about the dialogue because they kind of had it in their head. But now they're actually like thinking about surviving in the ocean, um, and remembering their lines, and um. It was just a sight to behold. It was really fun, and they, they got a kick out of it. And, you know, I'm sure if I try, you know, Holly was magnificent in the movie, and I'm sure she's going to be a huge, huge English actress in, in the next few years. Yeah. And maybe, you know, in 50 years' time, when I try and convince her to do <laughs> Sharkbait 2, and she's she's going to tell me, go away. Like, I'm, a, I'm an old lady now. I'm not going through that hell again. <laughs>
0: She's amazing, but you did so well with this casting, James, because you needed young actors who would throw caution to the wind, so to speak, and get out there on a jet ski because at one point you've got five of them hanging on to a single jet ski. I'd have some trepidation about doing that, thinking, all right, if one person moves, this is tipping over. Yeah. But... I think being out on the water, I think, with their youthful exuberance, I think this really helped, because when you're out on the water that long, we see the true nature of these characters start coming to light. And part of it has got to Mm -hmm. be, you don't really have to act as much when you're getting tired and cranky sitting out in the hot sun for 10 hours. Yes, exactly. It's almost like a method... Shoot, Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) so you're really, you
1: know, you're really giving them a little bit of, um, you're giving them something to fight against in real life, which just wouldn't be the case in the tank.
2: Yeah, no. The
1: tank feel like as much as I love shooting in the tanks, and they are very helpful for certain things. You know, it really, you still feel like you're on a film set, whereas. I think the um, environment that we managed to create with Shark Bay was actually this more of a sense of isolation. We were a mile from land in Malta, um, and it was just us, the camera, and it, I think we we actually shot the movie during the, the first wave of the pandemic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or just after, I should say, sort of three months after the big lockdown. And it, the ocean was caught, was just quiet. You know, there was it kind of benefited the movie because we didn't have boats and jet skis and holidaymakers kind of cruising past us because everyone was locked inside or, or not allowed to come on holiday, or, you know, and things like that, or keeping themselves close to home. So we ended up with a much quieter ocean, which really made was, was kind of eerie in itself, and I think that equally translated
0: to the cast and the crew. Well, see, that's why, you know, I started off and, and asking you about open water and tank because it did look... Rather calm for being open water,
1: I- yeah, and honestly, we would you know I think the the producers will say this as well. We really kind of lucked out in the sense that had we gone there and shot this summer or this autumn um, fall in America, um, the uh, you know the seas would be so much busier, and we'd have we'd have not only we'd have to deal with wakes of other boats, you know, sort of bashing into our rig but we also have to worry about um, painting a lot more off of the horizon. Mm-hmm. So it really was fortuitous uh, and, a, and a happy accident that we were able to achieve that.
0: Something that, that I have to commend you, and I'm curious whether you used any stock shark footage, underwater shark footage, or if this was all VFX, because this has to be some of the finest looking shark, underwater shark work that I have seen in quite a while
1: oh wow that's incredibly kind, Um, now I can wholeheartedly say it's all visual effects There's um, there's no stock shark in there Wow. Yeah, we should should really throw some love at the guys at Lip Sync, guys and girls, I should say, who who provided the the effects of the sharks. So I'm sure I'll I'll relay what you've said. I'm sure they'll be very,
0: very happy. And that's one of the things, right after I watched the film and I I sent an email to Susan, and it's like, I have to ask James because this is some of the finest underwater shark footage uh, that I have seen. And I think I've seen probably 90% of every shark movie made. So you just blew me away with that. How challenging was the edit on this one? Because while we have a couple jump scares in here, this isn't, you know, there's nothing really bombastic. We know we're going to get body parts. We know we're going to have dismemberment floating around, hanging out of shark teeth. But you have definite beats here, emotional beats that you really strike and what I find interesting is that most of these beats go with character revelation versus a jump scare with the shark. I love that in terms of the construct James. So that we get big emotional beats like when we've got Tom, somebody has to go in the water and swim toward the light, go towards the light and He's big man on campus, but he doesn't want to get in the water. Who does that then yeah, leave? Yeah. Who does that leave, Nat or Millie? And we have all, the, all that mess that's already come out about that whole trio. But those are the big emotional beats that you're hitting here. So I'm curious how challenging the edit was on this. Because you could have very easily just opted for hitting the beats of Shark Scares or actually hitting character beats. And I think it was very smart. You're hitting the character beats or the standouts.
1: Thank you. Well, yes, I mean, look, here's the thing. The edit, making a movie, is uh, every time you make a movie, it's kind of like a small miracle.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Everything has to come together in such a way for it to succeed. And then, you know, it may, just making a movie is a miracle, but making a good movie is like a double miracle. And um, you kind of make the movie three times. You know, you, you have the script, which was um, a, lovely, a lovely script we had from Nick Subtries, um and he's written some wonderful character dialogue. Um, stuff and drama beats and stuff like that. So obviously, you know, we're going to capture that because it's on the page to start with. Um, and then you kind of make the movie when you're shooting the movie because all of these technical things come into play with like, well, how's, how are we going to shoot it? How are we going to survive on the ocean for five weeks? How are we going to do the shark? And et cetera? And then you, as you say, you get into the edit and you make the movie again and you kind of... Um, you find the truth of what it all is, and you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, it is a survival thriller on the ocean. I think, in many ways, it's kind of that foremost, but equally, kind of well, maybe I've shot myself in the foot, but also equally foremost, it is a shark movie, and there's um, a certain expectation of what you kind of need to provide. So, it's like finding this balance of good character drama and mm-hmm. um, um and, and good shark scares because. You know, ultimately, I think after our first screening, we realised maybe we'd actually kind of gone too much into the drama side and not provided enough um, scares. So we got back into the edit and refined some, tightened some of the effects, and tightened some of the cut to actually amalgamate the movie into more of what you just described, which was a drama with horror scares. So, Mm -hmm. and then and then we worked it and worked it and worked it until you know we're in a place where you know you can't. I have this phrase called "you never finish; um, you just stop." <laughs> and it's—I mean, I you know, like I love the movie, but I could work on it forever, you know. But you have to just stop at one point. So, you know, the deadline looms and etc. And we stop, and you know, you're as happy as you can be at that point, And ultimately, we are—we were happy with it, and it's—we um, feel—we feel like we hit a nice tone of of those things that you mentioned. So um Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a version where it just jumps, and maybe there's a version where there's no shark. I mean, one of the things you kind of that's scary about this kind of movie going into it is like, what if, and kindly, you, you know, you complimented the VFX shark, which, you know, I'm grateful for, thank you so much, but like, you're kind of like, well, what if the shark didn't look good? Like, then people are just taken out of the movie. So, is there enough in the movie to make the movie work? Um, if the shark doesn't look good, can we cut it into like more of a drama survival thriller? So I think there was this inherent baseline going into it of like, right, well, let's just make sure we do as best as we can with the drama and the tension. If we have no shark, and then if we get a shark that looks great, the movie's going to be even better. So that was kind of the mindset. And I think that's hopefully led to what we have.
0: You definitely succeeded on both ends, James. And the fact that we do get a complete character arc with Holly's character of Nat, that, that is the, a driving force through this film. I have to tell yeah, you... She's magnificent. Oh. She's got a big future. Oh, of
1: absolutely. Her. She, she totally owned that character, you know?
0: And, but that third act and that cove area, that is some of the prettiest lensing I have seen. And we've got a shark there. We've got the the gradation of the water from clear to that greenish blue to blue and the rocky cliff area. and her just so perfectly, we feel her at that moment. We feel her journey in its entirety, and it is it's stunning. yeah, it's really stunning, James. Thank you. I, you really
1: gave everything to that, and you know we must um. It was so funny because we, um, when we went to that location, there was actually like a, a previous different kind of end to the movie which wasn't working so well, and one of the producers had this idea to uh, reshoot um, a new ending, which which drove us to kind of be smarter and think about what we wanted more, and and we we then went and found this particular spot in Malta, and um, it was. Uh, as you say just stunning uh-huh. and you would um, honestly I felt like we were shooting a James Bond movie like yeah. it looked like something from like Sean I, I turned around I was like Sean Connery's gonna walk up the beach with Holly Earl in his arms you know <laughs> and then um, so it, it was it was incredibly stunning an incredibly beautiful place to shoot and um, and as you say Holly just knew exactly what the character was and exactly how to finish that journey um, of her character and she honestly is one of the most hardest working um, players in the game I'm sure, like she just all of that swimming is for the most part her I'm sure it's probably 95% her wow. she really, like she would just get out of breath and do it again and she was and between us she was the best jet ski driver of the five of them so um, I say between us that uh, this is going on yes. but yeah she, uh, <laughs> she, was she was incredibly just like amazing um, and then she could also do this wonderful acting and very subtle performance with her eyes which just translates so well on the screen and you know she, it's really her movie so um, she's fantastic
0: yeah she can glare really well She she can, she has the greatest glare look that she gives in this film a few times that I just love. So I got one last question for you, James. Why a shark movie? Okay. Why a shark movie?
1: Why a shark movie? Yeah. Uh, as in a career choice.
0: Yeah. I think it's well, a good choice, uh, but why?
1: <laughs> I well, here's the thing: is I've always been a fan of shark movies you know Jaws is in my top two movies and it's only second to Jurassic Park and it's only because Jurassic Park impacted my childhood and the kind of turned me into making movies and being what I wanted to do But the second favourite movie is Jaws so there's always been this like urge to um, to make one and I was given a fortunate opportunity about five years ago to do some second-unit work on 47 Meters Down franchise Mm -hmm. um, with my friend, and this script came across. So a guy called Andrew Prendergast, um, the the producer of Sharp Bait, had been nurturing this script and developing it with Nick Sautrice, and I think they realised, or Andrew realised, that, hey, look, James has done some second-unit stuff. He knows kind of how to shoot a movie like this. And so when the opportunity came along and he said, "Oh, well, would you want to direct your own shark movie? I was just like, well, God, will I ever get a chance to do this again? So, And of course, so I just leapt at it. And, um, and we had a, a hell of a lot of fun. And,
0: um, you know, hopefully, hopefully everyone loves, loves the movie. <laughs> well, I love it. And I'm so happy that you made a shark movie. I'm tickled you worked on 47 Meters Down. I didn't know that.
1: Yes, I was. Sec- I was. I did some first assistant work and second unit director work, which is kind of what led to this journey, I suppose. So it's all you know, work we work, and um, I just love. I just love being on set. So well, there you go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, James! As always, this has been so much fun. I can't wait until we get to talk again. Yeah, well, hopefully not
1: for too long. I don't. I haven't got anything else coming out this year, but hopefully next year, and um, let's do it again.
0: Well, you know, I'll be watching it if you do.
1: All right. Th- um, I think we've got to wrap it up yep. now, uh, Debbie. But all the best, and
0: same to you. And we will chat again. All right. Bye bye. We'll take care. Bye, James.
1: Bye. Bye now. Have a great day. Bye.
0: And that was James Nunn, director of Sharkbait. And yes, uh, that was news to me. He had never mentioned that to me before, that he did work on 47 Meters Down, which was directed by my friend Johannes Roberts. And I'm happy to say that my pull quote was used in the marketing of that film. Um, I do love my shark films, um, but Sharkbait, it is out now. It is in theaters. It is available digitally. It is on VOD. See it. You will enjoy it. It's a quick 87 minutes, too. So, you know, sit back, relax, have some cocktails, laugh at stupid uh, spring breakers, and uh, root for the shark. So, now we're going to switch gears. We're just going to switch water. And we're going to welcome the wonderful Zach Carver to the show. Hi, Zach. Hello. Hello. How are you?
3: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I am fine. very happy to be speaking with you today about the race to Alaska. Boy, this is one heck of a documentary, Zach. Thank you. Uh, I had never heard of so nice to hear. uh, I had never heard of this race. and you really, you make this so fun. That, you know, now when the next race is coming, is approaching on June 13th, I will be anxiously scrolling the Internet for updates to follow this R2AK race. Um, It's so novel. It is so unique. You know, as I at the top of the show, I was giving the audience, the listeners, an idea of what this race is. And it's on the water. And it's sailboats, it's kayaks, it's canoes, it's, it's you're pedaling, you're paddling, but you're not using any motors. And correct, I have to tell you, the variety of skippers and boats that you showcase in this documentary and the people that we hear from, all walks of life, all different purposes for wanting to do it, such great ingenuity. In terms of some of the of the crafts that they have built uh, or come up with, and then just Absolutely. you know just this entire 750 miles of beautiful waterways. Um, okay, some parts are not really beautiful because you're on that of your seat wondering <laughs> if they're going to survive or if the boat's going to fall apart. But <laughs> it from beginning to end. You know, this isn't a nail biting thriller film, but this is, it's an eye opening excitement. And I love that about this. It's, I, I really love that.
3: Oh, that makes me so happy to hear.
0: You know, where did the idea, you know, how did you come to learn about the R2AK race? And where did the idea for, for doing a documentary arise?
3: um i first learned about it before the race existed i got a call from jake beattie the founder of the race that he needed to make a video to call racers to action uh he's like i got this crazy idea i want to do it um so i I showed up and and helped him make this video that has like all our friends and i think my parents are in the background and everything um but but then I, i grew up sailing in the pacific northwest and 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 uh, I thought there was a bigger story there, so I documented that first year as if we were making a film, and uh, you know various interactions over the years. But like at a certain point, I saw a movie called The Barclay Marathons, the race that, that eats its young,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, about an ultra an ultra marathon in Tennessee, and that's where I saw like a structure where the race is the protagonist,
2: mm-hmm. and I was
3: like, okay, this could be a this could be a movie. Uh, a guy I worked with on the, on the race, Luke Gardner, showed me that film, and I was like, I see how we. Because not no one racer or team was the like emerging as the star of a film, mm-hmm. but then uh, I realized like the race itself was was a film, so that was a, a fun realization.
0: So what? Now you get this great idea. You do the call to action videos, then you eventually get this great idea that ooh, this whole race would make you know would make a great documentary, and the fact that the race itself is the focus. Mother Nature becomes the antagonist. Uh,
3: Basically, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mother Nature is the antagonist here. But, uh, you know, how do you even start putting this together? Because you have footage here from multiple years. A lot of these people, Mm -hmm. yes, they come back. They race again. They race again. Um, and most of them, yeah. it's like they're not hoping for the ten grand; they're hoping for the second place uh, steak knives. Um, totally. You gotta respect people like that, sportsmen like that. Hey, we're happy with the steak knives if we get the steak knives. Um, so oh, yeah. How do you even? How did you even start putting this together? And you know. Getting all of this footage that you have, obviously a lot of the racers were uh, shooting themselves and turned over their footage, I would think. But fill me in on from the beginning process here because there's so much happening and from so many different directions. This had to be an immense challenge for you.
3: Yeah. Yeah, the, the the structure, like it, people often want to know about like the kind of harrowing tales of like filming hanging off a boat in a storm or whatever, which has its challenges. But the really the bigger challenge was how do you structure it and how do you make like a cinematic experience out of all this footage? So um, I worked with a fantastic editor named Greg King. And as Greg started to digest the over 70,000 individual clips we had, he realized.
0: OK, wait a minute. Uh, Back up right there. How many individual clips?
3: (laughs) Over 70,000.
0: Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow.
3: Daunting starting place.
0: Proceed, young man.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So. So Greg, you know, he's an experienced doc editor and he started to just set up the project and like understand, it took him two weeks to sort of set up the project and even understand what we had. And he had the great insight that the AK, really our A camera footage, the closest to the action mm-hmm. was what the racers had filmed themselves when they were out in the field. Sure. And by starting there, that gave us at least some information of what teams to follow up with, do more in-depth interviews with, uh, and try and tell like the broader story of, and then, um. And I think one of the big breakthroughs for like having a successful structure was realizing I could be loose with the years the participants were in. Like I was very worried that people would get confused. Oh, this is, this is 2015. This is 2017, etc. But if we found as long as we were true to like the emotional arc, we could jump mm-hmm. around in the, the years of the participants um, pretty, pretty fluidly because the race course itself is, is as old as time, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, that, that piece of that waterway isn't changing. So so as long as we kept going north, it, it sort of worked. Um, but yeah, starting with starting with stuff, I think it was finding those finding those teams that we could really like get, you know dig into because they had documented themselves,
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: which was hard because there were stories I knew about that were incredible stories. Like there's a guy named Roger Mann in the film that um, he did it solo. He's the first ever solo mm-hmm. finisher. But like there's a story from his first year where he he uh he crash landed onto a beach in the surf and his dry suit was open and his le- like the pant legs filled up with water he had he almost drowned had to wow. cut them with a knife and like has it's just cr- he is such a crazy adventure story but also all his cameras got washed overboard and there there's, there was no way to, to dramatize it so,
0: Oh um, well yeah the footage of him uh, when he finishes he looks. Mm-hmm. He he does look like he just went through ten hurricanes, and doesn't even know where yeah. he is. That guy gave this everything he had to finish the, to yeah, do this hey, on his own.
3: It's amazing how he does that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just Speaking look at some. You just look at some of these people, Zach, that you're you're profiling, and their fortitude. Their stick-to-itiveness, their insanity, uh, <laughs> to subject <laughs> themselves—you really feel and experience what they're doing, um, such as you know the first all-female crew. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a great story. You know that you that you highlight, and the girls did a great job
2: yeah,
0: of cap- of you know filming themselves during the journey. But as you're honing in on, you know, figuring out who you're going to focus on and who you're going to go back and do follow-up with, um, you know, how difficult is that to narrow that down out of all these competitors? Obviously, after the proving ground, when a lot of people don't even make it through the proving ground, uh, right. it kind of cuts down on... Y- your your selection gets narrowed down for you. Does it not?
3: True. Yeah, you do have a little bit of that. So, I mean, it, it's hard, because there's just... You know, there's been probably 450 people that have done this race since it started, <laughs> and, like, in covering it, I, I started to get to know a lot of them, so there's people I, I care about and w- wish I could feature, but it couldn't and stuff like that, but I think, like... Uh, So I I would say what we figured out as an organizing principle that started to narrow down the stories was first who documented themselves and what do we have so that we can really show a story. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we took, then I had like a, I had a three, a three level outline along, like on a big piece of butcher paper along my wall. And um, we, we outlined the hero's journey and then used the stories we knew from the teams Mm -hmm. to to mix and match, who, which team had an emblematic hero's journey moment uh, that that we could tell? So it was like, oh, this team has a great, you know, I'm lost in the deepest, darkest woods moment, and this team has a great leaving the leaving the comfort of the village, going out into, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this this team has almost functions like an oracle, that that sort of thing. Um, so we so, so we're always moving north of the race course, and then okay, well, this team has an awesome story, but th- it doesn't fit in our structure. So we, we, had, we could jettison that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was a big organizing principle. Wow. It was tough.
0: <laughs> I, I'm still just – my mind is still blown over 70,000 clips to go through uh, and even start yeah. narrowing down from there. But now at any point over the, over the number of years that you have footage from for the various races – you know, were you out there filming yourself? Because it looks like we've got quite a few instances where there is a boat coming by another boat and you're picking up thoughts and asking questions and things like that. Not to mention the incredible drone photography of the waterways. Um,
3: yeah, um, I was out there um, every year. Uh, we would have kind of a matrix of paid and volunteer resources to go film and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just finding the boats is a whole thing, because it's a 750 mile race course with only two checkpoints. So, uh, you follow them on a GPS tracker and work with what have to go intercept them and, uh, talk to them along the way. We did a lot of like putting a lab mic in a dry bag and, and, uh, driving close, throwing the mic over to them and then kind of doing these moving interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, which was a way to just check in in real time. Um, we had, yeah, the, the drone photography is great. We had some great drone pilots. Lee funnel Reich And drew Malcolm. Um, I don't know. It was, it was, yeah, I'm, I'm out there. You're out there a lot doing your best to capture it. Uh, we, it's interesting. It's like, I learned a lot about stabilization and <laughs> waterproofing things and, uh, You know, processing footage while you're bouncing along and 20 knots in a boat had its fun challenges, too.
0: Yeah, because a lot of this, I mean, there were some high winds out there uh, for a, a good portion of what we're seeing on screen. And we had, what, the one boat capsized and then it came back up, but the mast and the sail were fine. Then you've got another boat where the boom is totally shattered, and I love the ingenuity to tie it all together with rope and duct tape. Um, Oh
3: yeah, that seems fantastic.
0: I mean, I would do something like that. Duct tape. I hope everybody had duct tape (laughs) with them when they set sail. Uh, For real. But what you also do is you show us some of the very unique manners of navigating. uh, Of you know navigating in terms of not having being able to use motors. You really show yeah. us so many unique things. Was that something that you found fascinating as you over the years as you got to know these people and some of the boats they were building themselves and how they were the ingenuity they were using?
3: Oh I, I'm I'm totally fascinated with that. I'm I think like one of the you know my editor's not a boat person, so that was really useful because I could nerd out and get pretty deep into, like, oh, this pedal drive does this really cool thing and, like, um, tactics and stuff, but uh, I'm, I'm utterly fascinated with the idea of answering a question we stopped asking 150 years ago once once people had reliable engines, and uh, it's really cool to see how people are using new technologies and innovation to, like, address address moving through this complex waterway without the aid of internal combustion i think it's really fascinating
0: that's one of the things that i really found fascinating about the documentary zach is especially we've got the one the the pedals that work almost like penguin flippers yeah i I thought that was really interesting um you know and then some of the others but the ingenuity really just shines you did a great job picking teams and picking individuals who really exhibited real ingenuity for a survivalist, non-automated uh, world. And uh, I, I think that speaks a lot to the human condition. And it's something we need to see more of. But you really showcase that so well.
3: Thank you, yeah. I think it's like a, a subtle bid towards sustainability and stuff. It's Mm -hmm. it's like there, there are so many ways to solve solve problems without just burning oil, you know, um, and things like that. So I thought it was cool to just make you think about that in a very creative, like, here's the problem. 750 miles, tons of current, nowhere to anchor half the time. How do you get through there without an engine? Mm -hmm. And, And I think just getting people thinking about that innovation was really a fun, a fun thought exercise. And, uh, yeah, I think the currents are something, too, which uh, people have trouble imagining about the uh, the Pacific Northwest. You know, when you think of sailing in the ocean, you're like, oh, it's just the water. It's just out there. <laughs>
2: um, but, no.
3: <laughs> but up here, the currents can run, you know, 15 miles an hour or more, and that's uh, that completely stalls your progress. Um, so it's really interesting. or even, But even, like, if you're rowing or paddling, two or three miles an hour of current is about what your boat goes. So there's just a demoralizing factor there, too, and trying to understand your strategy. Do you push against it? Do you not? Do you anchor? I don't know. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating event.
0: Well, and that's something that you, you showcase really well for us. You show us the inherent dangers that Mother Nature gives us. Some Those currents and those whirlpools are just, <laughs> wow. And at the same time, yeah. we see these little islands that, that pop up in the thruway. And it's And it can look like a milk pond. And then you just go yeah. another hundred yards or so, and here you've got eddies and whirlpools and crisscross currents, which I found really interesting because everybody hears about the point in the oceans where we've got issues where salt and fresh meet up and and do not merge Mm -hmm. there's also the going one direction other direction currents um in the ocean but never in these smaller situations do we see that kind of whirlpooling and current and cross current happening and you really show us that um it's it's very plain to see and i just really was mesmerized by it
3: yeah, there's saltwater rivers. Uh, it's it's really fascinating, uh, and just like, you know, if you look at the, it's it's all this mountainous area and all this water. Just you know, the gravity's trying to pull the water through, and so there's it, it's forcing it to run faster. And then the, there's obstacles, there's rocks and points and stuff that create the eddies and the whirlpools, and like it's a it's a really a three dimensional three-dimensional world of forces acting on you at all times. It's really, it's it's a fascinating place.
0: Well, something that, that I didn't see um, was anybody that had the bottom of their boat ripped out by some of the rock rocky <laughs> formations under underwater. Um, I didn't see any of that.
3: Not, you know, one advantage of this race course is it's very deep. It's all mountainous and glacially formed, so you're less likely to to run into the bottom
2: mm-hmm. than maybe
3: you would on the East Coast or someplace like some somewhere else. Um, but you... I don't know if we've had anyone run aground, really. I know some people that have, like, taken their boat, tried to take shortcuts through tidal areas where they were literally walking and towing their boat.
2: Oh, God. Uh,
3: <laughs> which sounded kind of brutal. But I don't know of anyone that's... I don't know if we've really grounded out too many
0: people. Well that's a good thing. <laughs> so, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know Yeah,
3: they're they're usually pretty good navigators.
0: They appear to be. And this is one of the things that you also make sure to include in here. Number one, I love your Chiron, your IDs on every on everything, so we can keep track of how many years somebody has been in a race, what crew we're looking at, what person we're looking at, because some have, have crewed on different boats, uh, from one year to the next. Totally. So I love all of that identification that you give us, uh, and it really, oh, it yeah, I I found that very helpful uh, at keeping track of who we're of who we're looking at. Which begs the question: as you've culled down all of these seventy thousand clips, and then you've done follow up on certain crews and individuals and boat and actually boats. Some of them we don't even meet the crew, but you talk about. We see the boat, because it's a really cool-looking boat. Um, yeah. How did you then, you and Greg, come together to find the actual final structuring in terms of your editing beats? Because this moves very swiftly, just like swift water. Mm-hmm. This moves very swiftly. <laughs> you never get tired. You never get bored. You're not looking at your watch Or looking at the clock on the computer, it's like, oh, God, how much longer do I have to endure? (laughs) No, it ended, and I wanted to see more. I tell you that in all honesty, Zach. I wanted to see more. I wanted to see more about the boats, the different uh, methods Mm. of uh, propelling the boats. Um, I really wanted more. Uh, You could have extended this. You could have taken this out a full two hours easily. Oh, wow, thanks. So, but I'm curious... Years. I mean, we it was. <laughs> <laughs> sh- 70,000 clips, I'm sure at one point it was. But I'm really curious how you managed to package this and find those beats so that you have a defined pacing with what you ultimately decided you wanted to include.
3: I mean, I think a lot of it was... You know, you know, it's clunky at first, right? Our first, our first edit had a very different structure.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, one of the things we even experimented with was showing the finish, the winners, like, very soon because we thought since the, the winners are sort of the least interesting thing about the race, maybe we just we just get that over with and then you can focus on the other things. But it really took the drama out and stuff. But we, we played with a lot of different things. I guess um, a lot of it's... I think Greg just has a wonderful sense of emotional truth in, he's, he's a visual artist he's a very just like sensitive and creative person and so together we would just find moments that if it, even if it wasn't giving you like the, the specific uh, like narrative beat it would give you the emotional beat like mm-hmm. there's there's a moment in the middle where um, Carl Kruger the stand-up paddleboarder is talking about it. Um, and then the ocean just op- you know then it just opened up and he spreads his arms wide and then um, we cut to just a bunch of dolphins and whales mm-hmm. and people experiencing nature in that way. It's not a strictly a narrative leap at all. No, but it, it's, it's the feeling one might get of, of pushing through something, feeling free, feeling confident again. And, and like the, the sort of the treat that the, 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 wonderful bounty the race course can give you if you stick with it. And so it's like this interesting it's like the right emotional truth for that moment, even though those are those aren't linearly linked to where we are on the race course or specifically a story beat, but it fit the emotional truth of the moment. And I think Greg was really good at finding those things um, or us finding them together.
0: Well, to piggyback on your idea to, you know, to then hold off showing us winner winners rather than show it early. I love mm-hmm. I I love the fact that you show us people that it took 17 days. We see, we, yeah. we get crews that made it in four days, five days, seven days, but also mm-hmm. ones that took 17 days, 13 days. Yeah. Um, that speaks volumes. And that, to me, in something like the R2AK, is just as exciting as the person that got there in four days.
3: Yeah, well, they have more time to have more adventures, you know. (laughs) Well, that's... But...
0: but, You know, and looking at that coastline, the beauty of that, you think, yeah, you would love to stop and have adventures, but by the same token, it's like, all right, I'd have to navigate that whole waterway just to get to that one point. I don't think so. Um, So I'll stick with doing it vicariously through all of them. Um,
3: I think that that could be sensible but Uh. (laughs) i
0: really did appreciate the fact that you let us know this wasn't about just who came in first who got the 10 grand and who got the steak knives this was you know everybody you were showing us everybody and i think that was so important uh that winning isn't everything it's about having fun and actually making the journey
3: yeah, and, like, finding your edge. You mm-hmm. know, there's a whole the, – the organizers of the race, actually, to uh, are the way they met was they were both outward-bound instructors uh, mm-hmm. way back when. And so they used to take people out on these long boats, which are, like, a 30-foot traditional wood boat that, um, you know, usually, usually kids trying to, like, have a, a gnarly outdoor experience. But also a lot of that is, like, letting them, you know – Take care of themselves in various ways and, and giving a lot of leeway um, kind of facilitating an experience rather than like managing an, an experience and so the whole ethos is very much like this is for we're giving you a framework to prove yourselves not uh, so, so the winning is important but but all the way through the ethos of the race there's this very egalitarian uh, approach which i think is really special
0: so now, what did you learn about yourself? Because learn about yourself making this as a filmmaker, because this is your first feature documentary. Correct. And this is quite an undertaking for a first feature documentary, Zach. <laughs> seventy, Thanks. I can't. Um, seventy thousand clips. That is more than an, uh, an undertaking for your first feature documentary. So, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker? I can't get beyond the seventy thousand. I'm sorry.
3: And um, it's a it was a lot. Um, I learned, well, I learned that I have the endurance to do a feature. I mean, it's like, not that it's anything that it's not similar to what the racers go through, but like it is an endurance sport to do a feature doc, to stick with it and to like push through the clunky edits and, and rewrites and restructure and go back for interviews. Like it's a, it's a really, it's a long haul. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to know that I can stick through it. um, and I think I, I mean, I, I think that the ra- working on this race and working with those organizers, there was a lot of trial by fire for like me as a producer in the field and stuff like that, where I, uh, they're just sort of like, figure it out. And I did, <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, it's nice to know I can figure it out even when things are a little, like a little harrowing or you don't have the resources or there's not a ferry or a plane, you know, it's it, it interesting quite a challenge to
0: cover you know and i'm glad you mentioned there's not a ferry or a plane or something um that reminds me of the fact a very key segment you have in here is with the coast guard speaking to Mm -hmm. the racers and then your sit down with the coast guard to get her feedback about yes i want to scare them i want people to know nobody's coming to help you there is nobody. Yeah. It, it's like, if you're yeah. at this point, it's going to be at least two hours till we can even get there if we even know you're there. And you see this little dot over there? That's what you look like. And we don't come for dead bodies. We only come for live people. I mean, this... Yeah. I love that part. I love that. Um, oh, Susan's
3: amazing. Susan Pickrell so cool. Uh- She's like, she used to drive a hundred-foot rescue hovercraft. Like that's just so badass. But um, she she did a great job scaring. Like that that first that first lecture I saw of hers. I mean, it was chilling. Everyone like there, you could feel it in the room, and a lot of people really didn't understand that how remote that coastline is. Because in America, I feel like we have or in, the, you know, in the United States we have far more uh, life saving stations and stuff. But the roads stopped. On the coastal BC, mm-hmm. because it's too mountainous. Yeah. So you can drive up to the north end of Vancouver Island, and you can drive from inland to a town called Bella Coola. But that there's just no roads for a few hundred miles. There's just no way to get there. So it is like a, a helicopter or a plane or a boat, and you know, even a fast rescue boat's not going very fast. It's hard, to, kind of, to recalibrate. Um, well, very very remote.
0: Yeah, and the rescue boats have to they're facing the same water challenges that the racers are facing. Granted they have they have a motor to get through it, but still, they're still facing those whirlpools yeah. and those currents and the and the eddies and the rocks. Uh, so, but yeah, I I just I would have been remiss not to mention that segment because that is such a key segment and I do love the the how the camera went around the room and you saw the looks on the faces of the racers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. It was the, what am I doing here? Is that kind of look. <laughs> so, now before I let you go, Zach, I'm curious, is there anything off the top of your head that you would have done differently in your approach to this documentary?
3: I mean, I guess if I'd known how important the racer shot footage was, I might've tried to, you know, earlier on in the process, inspire people to film themselves more Mm -hmm. and, uh, and maybe try to look at some sort of codified system for questions for people to ask each other, like teammates and stuff. Um, But I I think it's, the movie feels like a very organic outgrowth of, of working with the the race and the racers. and, And so I don't feel like I, I would do anything hugely different um, because it, it seemed to it seemed to happen quite organically. So, so it's hard it's hard to want to buck that trend that, that yielded what I think is a pretty fun movie.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree with you; it is a very fun movie. So, any any plans working on anything else right now, or just waiting for this to hit theaters on Friday?
3: <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it being in theaters. Um, we are in development of, of several other projects, uh, we produced a narrative feature in the fall um, called Paradise. And we have, there's a documentary, the, there's a guy who did this race on a stand-up paddleboard.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, that alone is incredible. That but blew my mind. But he got to mind. the end and was like, well, I wish I could keep going. And uh-huh. so he has an expedition planned through the Northwest Passage coming up. So we are fundraising currently to document that, um, which will be a much more of like a personal, personal journey. But um, it's a 1,900 mile paddle across the north edge of North America and the Arctic. So,
0: wow. Well, yeah. You kept (laughs) cut. You kept cutting back to him, standing and paddling, and I just kept thinking, oh my god, better him than me. (laughs) <laughs> Better him than me, and let, uh, every time I'm he was you. on cam- every time he was on camera, he was calm and and upbeat and so positive. And it's like, wow, wow. Now, will you be uh, attending or participating in the June thirteenth R two A K race?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go back up and um, run, kind of running the media team with them. So we'll we're. We have a new uh, new program this year where we, we're getting these sort of multimedia fellows that are um, going to be more of like a personal journalism experience to try and report on it. And um, But, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fun thing to be a part of. I'm excited to go back.
0: And, of course, everybody can learn more about R2AK at r2ak.com and to find out about the movie, backslash r2ak-movie. Um everybody can watch the race find out about the race come June 13th but everybody can see the film the race to Alaska this Friday in theaters in 40 different markets across the. US
3: yeah it, fantastic
0: uh, Zach thank you so so much I can't wait to see your next projects uh, I am thank you I am really anxious to see what you deliver next what you come up with. And I hope you'll come back on the show again.
3: I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, thank you, Zach. And you've got to have a great day.
3: You too. Take care.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks, Zach. Bye-bye. And that was Zach Carver, director of the documentary Race to Alaska in theaters on Friday. And if you don't know about the R2AK Race, This will blow your mind when you see the doc. I I highly recommend it. And, of course, Sharkbait. Sharkbait is out right now. Theaters. VOD. Digitally. You can never go wrong with a shark. All right. So that is all the time we have today. We'll be back next week with a jam-packed show. The director behind White Fortress will be with us. And I'm so looking forward to this. Dan Mirvish is back with us to talk about his new film, 18 and a Half. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.